This is the Indigene Podcast, a collection of conversations about Indigenous women's health and well-being. This episode was guided by a community advisory board of Indigenous elders, mothers, and daughters. I'm your host, Sophie Neuner, member of the Karuk tribe. Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Stern, citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. And I'm your host, Olivia Trujillo, a member of the Danan Nation. On this last episode of Indigene, cultural practitioners Kathy McCovey and Lisa Hillman are here to teach us about Indigenous stewardship and the sacred connection between land and our physical, spiritual, and mental well-being. For millennia, the Karuk and other Native people in the western parts of what is currently known as the U.S. and across the globe used fire to manage the landscape. Over time, complex cultural practices were developed to use fire to maximize the production of game animals, fish, edible and medicinal plants, and basketry materials, all the while minimizing the risk of -of out-of-control dangerous fires that threatened villages and resources. For much of the past 150 years, federal and state agencies criminalized traditional fire practices. These agencies focused myopically on fire suppression, ignorant of the fact that fire is something that we live with relationally, not something that we can conquer. This led to massive fuel buildups in our forest. And now, with global warming driving record temperatures, high wind events, and dry lightning storms, we see devastating megafires every summer. Kathy McCovey is a fourth-generation forester, an archaeologist, and a cultural resource specialist. She has dedicated her life to revitalizing traditional land management practices in our Karuk homelands, in what is now known as Northern California. Lisa Hillman is a renowned Karuk basket weaver, an art form that she carries on and has been practiced from generation to generation since time immemorial. Lisa is the founder of the tribe's Pekya Field Institute, which aims to augment long-term ecocultural revitalization for the tribe. Lisa also served on the community advisory board for this podcast and has shaped this project since its inception. Lisa has also been my biggest teacher, my strongest supporter and closest friend. I'm so, so lucky to be her daughter. Mama and Kathy, we're so honored to have you here and to share this conversation with you. The pleasure is all mine, darling. (laughs) I spent most of my life in an educator role. So I learned that through Western um, education um, system. I got my master's degree in education. I did a lot of teaching on different fronts, especially in uh, university level. And at one point, I, re- I was just thinking to myself, this is, you know, it's a great thing. I love helping people, but I'm helping all of these young people who have already made it. <laughs> They're already in college. They're already getting their master's degrees. And I, I really felt, um, you know, and maybe that's a, an age thing, too. I really felt drawn back to my homeland to do work there with our own people who haven't made it yet. 
with that, you know, I uh, developed a, an educational curriculum that centers Karuk indigenous knowledge and practice, our history, as well as our, you know, current uh, policy efforts. And in doing that, I entrench myself, of course, more and more into land stewardship because that is so intrinsically uh, connected to not only our education, but our life ways. I'd say that that's kind of um, evolved into a way where I'm, you know, intensely basket weaving now and intensely practicing, um, you know, land and resource stewardship, uh, so to speak, but um, just being a full-time engine, which I think is the most important thing for the, for our people here now is to, is to see, you know, we can, we can be us. And I've learned so much from Kathy. She's an amazing teacher. Just listening to her and watching her, I just, I'm like, I filled with this, this real intense desire to, to give that to other people, let other people experience that as well. I was born and raised in Happy Camp, California. And I was raised by my grandparents. And my grandfather, he worked for the Forest Service. That was one of the few jobs around. The Native people, we adapted. And my ancestors adapted. When contact came, it was mining that pushed a lot of the settlement and the land taking from the Native people around 1864. A lot of our Native men, if they weren't killed in the genocide, the survivors adapted to mining. And a lot of the women, there weren't a lot of men left. And so they ended up intermarrying with a lot of the miners. They continued to live here along the river. And then when mining went out, timber came in. And so a lot of the Native people became loggers. And a lot of the people went to work for the Forest Service because that was one of the way that the government, when the Forest Service developed in about 1900s, was to um, settle the land, was to basically take it from the Native people, give it out to the settlers, and then claim all the land around our villages along the Klamath River for the federal government. And I was learning that from my grandparents. We went out pretty much every weekend and we gathered and or we hunted or we went fishing or we were looking for tan oak acorns and mushrooms and basket material. My grandpa used to take us out and he used to shoot the sugar pine cones out of the sugar pine trees. And there were big cones back then. They've since cut all the big trees we had a food forest here in Northern California. Anyway, the um, pine cones, we used to bring them home, put them in the garage, and just let them lay there all spread out. And we gather them in the fall, then go through the winter. And then as it would warm up in the spring, the bracts would open. And I can remember many a time of my being out in the garage for quite some time, breaking open the little um, sugar pine nuts and, and eating them because <laughs> they were really good. And they were really big then because they were the big cones you know, the crop trees that the people had grown, had managed with fire. Now, when you think about the village sites along the river corridor, what you have are the village and then around the village is usually oak woodland and grasslands, basket material, edible, medicinal. And in that area, 
a lot of the burning was done by the women. And um, as you get further out, the men would burn for clarity underneath of the canopy for hunting, for browse for the deer and the other animals. And then beyond that would be a combination of native burning and lightning. So you've got the whole area being managed. And so fire is the key, but it also changes the basket material. Mm. So I learned all to that. Positively. It, to, yes. to, for the positive. Yeah. So I was learning all of that basically from my grandparents, you know, how things fit. When I went to work for the Forest Service, I worked really hard, but I never got up in ranks. I'd see people that went to school, they would get up in ranks. So I decided to go to school and I did really well at school in college. And so as I had that college under my belt, I was able to secure jobs at a higher, higher, more managerial level in the Forest Service. But I also learned Western science because I went to school for forestry. So then I began to um, meld that Western science with the traditional ecological knowledge. And um, the people that come in from the outside to work with people here, a lot of times they learn from us. And a lot of time our native people, when they go out to college, they find themselves, like if they do their master's or the PhD, basically proving with Western science what our oral tradition tells us about mm-hmm. the burning regime, Yeah, about the change in sticks. Erin Rents, you guys' cousin, she did her, uh, I believe it was biology, um, botany, MA, botany. botany, on uh, the changes in physiology of basket material because w- – the elders told us we need the basketry burnt, but then the managers, the Forest Service would say, well, we can't burn. We're not going to, we don't have the money to burn for you native people for your basketry. And so the thing is that when they go to school and they prove it out, then we have something to say here. Yeah. This is why, this is why it's different to burn than it is to cut. Yeah. And we're lucky that people are actually listening now more and more to that. I think it's really becoming uh, more clear because the Forest Service now has a situation on their hand, <laughs> hands that they can't uh, they can't take care of because after you know over a hundred years of fire suppression, all around us is uh, is just a fire hazard, you know, and it's not only in these wilderness areas in which we live right now, but also it's encroaching into urban areas, billions of dollars goes in every year to trying to put out uh, these fires that have increased in size, in intensity, and in frequency every single year. So now, now people are going, oh, wait, uh, what what were you saying about, you know, treating uh, the area with fire? Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's such a good idea. Yes. So anyway, I think that's more, more or less why people are actually listening to, to native peoples now and helping us to do what we need to do. It's easy for people to understand how important land is to our own body and our own health, uh, our own well-being. When you think of planting a seed, so say say you you know you plant something in a little pot of of soil, and then you watch it grow, and it fills you with this intense joy. And if that plant grows into something that you can then 
feed your family. It's, it is such an incredible, joyous moment of serving those acorns to your family that you've been watching, burning around those trees, making sure that the area is uh, free of acorns that have got bugs in them. Then you've, you know, you've gone through all of that process of collecting, drying, um, cracking, leaching, grinding, and then turning it to, um, to a food that you give your family. And just even talking about it, I'm feeling, I can feel these hormones going through my body. I, it's, it's so important to my, my well-being, also as my identity as a tribal person to be able to take care of my land and take my responsibilities seriously. That is mental and physical health, spiritual health. You, you have your uh, family, you have your village. And a lot of us uh, tribal people were connected to each other um, by relationships, by working relationships, family relationships. And so we're there to support each other. But in an area that's isolated like we are, we depend. If we aren't gathering for ourselves and if we aren't uh, storing our gathered resources and uh, to use for that winter and a couple winters and trade off or give for presents, the, the surplus that we have, then we become vulnerable to food insecurities. Yes. And we become vulnerable to that food truck uh, coming in every, every once a week or so in the right. milk truck. And so a lot of people, if that food truck quits coming in, they're going to be panicked. They're not going to know what to do. But we do, you know, we have the food stores for a couple of years. And so um, we've been through this. Our families yes. have been through this. We know we know how to use the forest. We know what to eat. You can't have a stagnant forest. You can't have a stagnant reservation because what you do is you manage people we're the smarter the species, right? Supposedly. Well, so we, <laughs> so we ought to be able to, to, you know, to figure this out. And, and the, the forest, the food, the, the land is always giving, 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 but we're always taking, taking, taking. And until we give back and let things have its space and, and its respect, it will be very lopsided and it will continue to be the Anthropocene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, climate change is real. I see a lot of trees dying. We are in a mega drought. They haven't seen a drought like this for what they say, a thousand, two hundred years. And so we have things dying all around us. And if we don't get in there and we don't work, we don't remove things, we don't manipulate the vegetation, then those fires will come through and they won't stop because they have so much to burn. Like the Slater fire in 2020, that was a, a mega fire. And 600 tribal people lost their homes. You know, we became, again, landless, basically homeless in, in a land of plenty. That's what happens when you don't manage the land. You don't get rid of the fuels. When you get a spark in there, it'll go and it will get big and it nothing will be able to stop that fire. And then the place is barren. There's nothing there. Up in 
happy camp. I live up there where the fire went through. I lost my cabins, but the fire was in 2020 and now it's uh, 2022. There are no birds up there still mm. in the Indian Creek drainage. Yeah. That's where that fire Slater fire burnt. There, there are no animals. You know, it just killed everything, evaporated everything. Yeah. You know, I think that this, uh, it's important to understand, um, you know, since we are from this area, this very mountainous part of California, when those things happen here, where we're from, it happens to us. So it's that barren, you know, bur burning out of, uh, of an area, it goes straight into a core. As Native people, you identify yourself with certain things. There's there's a lot of gender specific kinds of uh, of activities. Even though there's always, you know, there's this kind of flow, the spectrum. So, so where that's not like, you know, no men can do this and no women can do that. But there are specific things that are kind of, um, you know, where women take care of them. Like as as Kathy had said about, you know, doing the burning around the villages for and especially for specific things like medicinal plants and for a lot of the food, that's um, that's absolutely a, a woman's domain. To have your place like nuked, so to speak, where you used to gather acorns for your family uh, for generation to generation, that getting burnt where you can't even tell sometimes where those places were because there's no markers anymore that you can recognize that's it's horrifying you know when the first contact and all the that all went on just endless amounts it was basket weavers that were actually making enough money to feed the families and the men really needed to support their women to do that they weren't the ones you know that people were trying to hire on any kind of higher level position. The men really kind of, they sort of got lost. The hunting and the fishing, all that's taken away that really hit, hit the, the core of their, you know, manhood and their, you know, being able to be providers. Uh, Non-native populations of that were making bank on native lands were then buying these baskets that they would use to decorate their homes. And that was really the, the only way to get income for your family and to feed them. So I think it's an interesting thing that it was the basket weavers in the 70s who were the major voices for turning fire to the land. Because without fire, the Basket weaving materials are um, not only weaker; they don't grow as straight. They're buggy. They're so such less quality that it's really difficult to weave. So in the seventies, women were just like, "This has to happen." It really was um, a beautiful, powerful thing for for Native women to stand there in a line uh, in front of the Forest Service offices saying fire needs to get back to the land. I mean, it's taken a long, long time, but I really feel good about, about our, our power and strength as women, as providers to our family on a different level to say this land is not replaceable. Traditional knowledge is, is this story body of knowledge um, that is cultivated and 
and perfected over thousands of years of, of experience and of practice of learning from other tribal people, cultural practitioners from generation to generation. And some of the very core knowledge is the stories of our first people. In the beginning of time, things weren't formed. And as they began to form into the first people, they started telling each other and teaching about how to do things right. And they weren't doing it right themselves at the beginning. There was lots of, of trial and error, but that trial and error were things that were very important lessons that were transferred to our people through the generations. At the time of the Great Transformation, those first people turned into different things. Some turned into pine trees and some turned into rocks, some turned into stars, one turned into the moon, one turned into the sun, another turned into fire, and another turned into humans. And all of these people, all of these first people as after the transformation, they knew themselves to be related to one another. They knew that that was their, their brother, their sister, and they knew that to treat each other with respect was the way that that family could live together in harmony and in balance. Not, and the time when it's not in balance is when there's fighting or disrespect between those, um, those, the, those trees. If I disrespect my tree, I'm disrespecting my brother. And I, my brother is then mad at me and going to do me something, you know, uh, dirty in, in return. That's the way it is with all of our, our, our plant relations, our animal relations, fish relations, and also our relation to fire. Treating fire with the respect that it, um, that it deserves to be a useful tool rather than a voracious uh, beast. And we focus on the fire like it's a thing, mm -hmm. like it's, and they call it the beast a lot of times. Mm -hmm. If you're in fire camp, it's like they're fighting the beast. We're going to control this. But it is the fuels. The fire is there and the fire is burning because it has unlimited fuels. People who don't live around here think that, oh, yeah, it's great. Look at all those green trees. That's what I want to see. But that's if that's what's going to burn. If you keep your, yeah. your forest or your living space in the right successional stage for the right breadth around you, when fires come in, they won't have that much to burn. One lady had told me all these fires and we were kind of talking and she goes, well, she goes, why don't they just drop one of those bombs that just suck all the oxygen out of the air? That will make the fire go out. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, Whoa. I, I don't think that would be a very good idea. But it's just that lack of, of, of knowledge, not understanding the problem where it's at. They feed in with their ignorance and support the um the, the things that are going on that are contrary to what environmentally actually needs to go on. Mm -hmm. um, I remember you guys talking about fire helping with 
materials for weaving. Can you tell us more about the process of tending to the materials as well as gathering materials and how you became interested in weaving as well? I mean, anybody would be interested in weaving. Hello. <laughs> I mean, this is the most interesting thing in the whole world. But actually, where I got to be the most crazed about weaving is just wanting to be closer to my mother. Um, I'd had a kind of a bad, rough time and my mom had uh, she'd had a heart attack and I just, uh, it, I, um, really had a, just a breakdown and I, I, I wanted so much to spend more time with my mother. And so I started going with her to basket weaving classes and, uh, and I recognized how, uh, how important that was not only the connection with my mother, but also to the other women in the tribe. All of a sudden, I recognized what was missing of my life is this real deep connection to women of all ages, laughing, spending time, having also moments of, you know, sorrow and, and trying to help someone else, support someone else throughout the year with tending materials and keeping, you know, uh, making sure that you've got good materials for, for weaving, you have to be out in the forest all year round and on the river as well. But every time I go out, I always make sure to leave the area better, um, cleaner, nicer than it was before. So I will target invasive species such as the Himalayan blackberries that have just, you know, taken over practically. I try to get some areas cleaned out underneath some of the giant fern, uh, Woodwardia, you know, cleaning out some of the old junk there that's, you know, left over from years and years of just, you know, sitting there, not getting burned out, trying to remove it and give it some air. And then I'll take materials especially since I'm good in feet, I won't take the materials that are easiest access, you know, to like the road. You save that for the elders so that they can do drive-by harvesting and clipping uh, things. As far as certain things, right now um, I'm tending an area. It used to be a really nice place to get willow, but the um, because we don't have the annual floodings that we used to have um, since, you know, right now it's because of all the dams that are still in place and people taking too much from groundwater. So we are getting that those, those flush of flood that take out the old growth willows. So we, we have to manually cut and then and piling them up for burning. You know, you're working areas all year round because, you know, some things that you get in the fall, some things you get in the in the summer, some things you get in the spring. And each material that you're getting or harvesting, you're first of all, you are managing that area. And you um, that's that's your responsibility as a as a weaver, just like teaching others is a responsibility uh, as a weaver. There's this reciprocal relationship where then those things, those materials will then grow better for you. So you have this, this, this sense of reciprocity in that I take care of you so that you take care of me. That makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. That was a beautiful answer. I'd be curious to hear your take on this, Kathy. Every time I've had the honor of going out into the woods with you, I've learned 
so, so much. And beyond learning so much, it makes me feel so good to be out with you. It makes me feel just healthy and happy and alive in a way that, you know, you don't always feel on a day-to-day basis. So I'd, I'd love to hear your, your take on this question and what, what tending to the forest, what gathering materials means for your own spiritual, mental, and physical well-being. It's hard to put into words. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, but I'm part of it. Some people have a hard time thinking when you look around that you can relate to everything. That, you know, you can feel everything. That everything has a spirit. Everything has an energy. And I can feel that. And so... It is, you know, when you're going out there, you're helping things. You're helping things grow. And that contributes to your good medicine. When you have good medicine, it, it's because you pray, you talk. I talk. I talk to the trees. I talk to the animals. I do too. I talk to the landscape. I talk to the creator, the spirit people. So it's, it's where I belong. I've been actually very fortunate to um, to work outside my whole career, starting out as a firefighter, then a forester, and um, landing the only archaeology retraining position in all of California for the Forest Service. I was the only Whoa. one they chose. Cool. So it's like, and I didn't really want to become an archaeologist because, you know, they never did us any good. Yeah. The anthropologists, you know, <laughs> pull out these little they misunderstood the, the native people. They made up their own story about us. And so I uh, applied and I was the only one they selected. <laughs> and so um, I, t- I learned at that point that was my, I was supposed to do this. I was, this is path I'm supposed to be led on. And so for me, just being out in the forest, tending to things, being part of the ecosystem, um, part of the land, part of the forest. I'm not a visitor. I'm not there just to take things. I'm there because I belong there. And, you know, when when you have your villages and, and your people have been here for so long that when they pass away, they're buried and they become part, you know, of the, the earth. They help the, the plants grow and everything. So and then we're gathering. We are what you eat. We're gathering from <laughs> our forest and so this whole cycle for us is, it's all about here. It's all about this place and our village sites and how we choose to live our life in the amount of time that we've been given to be here. And if it, it's to be part of our world and experience it every level and everything that it has in it, you know, that, that's a blessing. Some people say, oh, yeah, that's so hard going out and gathering stuff. That's not, <laughs> you know, it just, it's part of your lifestyle. You know, what else are you going to do? I, I get more. My, my husband gets mad if I do it by myself. He's like, Oh, you didn't let me go with you. What'd you do? <laughs> Cause it's, it's so fun. It's yeah. So to me, it's just part of my life. It, it just leads to a stronger mentality. You're self-sufficient. 
you're thinking ahead because, you know, you've always got to be aware of your situation and um, <clears throat> be observant of everything that's around you. And when you're that, you see the real special things, too, like the bird nest or the butterfly wings or, you know, it's all leads to a good, healthy, wholesome life. What kind of advice would you guys get give for others to get involved in this sacred practice? I feel like this has been a great learning experience for me just because I'm Navajo and from the Southwest and basically from a desert area. So I do not know a lot about what you guys have talked about today. So I'm very grateful to be able to hear this information, but I'm just wanting to know how do others get involved? You know what? Um, I, I've thought about this actually quite some because it is, you know, it is such a privilege to be Karuk uh, person living in my own um, ancestral territory. And, you know, e even if you are, an indigenous woman, it doesn't mean that you get to live where your people are from. And, and maybe you're not even indigenous. What I would tell all of those people is that really connect yourself to your land, to where you're at, you know, as much as you can at all times. And even if you're in New York City up in some skyscraper, you are on indigenous land. And that land it deserves respect and uh, and an appreciation. And if you can stop different times of the day and just smell, maybe it's not a good smell, but you, it is a smell and it deserves to be smelt. Try and take care of something, you know, whether it's uh, a little plot of land or maybe you're uh, using um, plants in pots. In giving and, and caring for something, it strengthens you on your inside, your your spiritual well-being and your, your mental, your physical well-being by, by caring for something. And so it really doesn't matter um, where you're at. There, everything needs to be taken care of. The elders have left us roadmaps to tell us what to do. Josephine Peters was a mentor of mine. She's an herbalist, a tribal member. And she wrote this book called After the First Full Moon in April. And that book talks about herbs. They're very common herbs. The, a lot of the plants that grow here on the Klamath River and used by the Karuk grow all over. It's accessible to all of us, native and non-native. And what I've learned is that elders have have been interviewed and they have sought to be interviewed and had books written about their knowledge because they wanted it passed down through generation to generation. And people want to help. People want other people to learn. They also have basket weaver gatherings like here in California and everybody can go. And it's a way that um, the weavers pass on their knowledge and they, they even let non-Native people weave. It's not like, you know, this is ours and nobody else can have it. It's like, hey, everybody, you know, let's get together. Let's learn. Let's weave. Let's work together. But the opportunities are out there. You listen to Kathy McCovey and Lisa Hillman on the Indigene podcast. This episode is the last in our series on Indigenous women's health and well-being. But there are so many more stories to be told so this is not a goodbye. 
This podcast is a production by the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. We'd like to thank our advisory board who have shaped this project in every way. This podcast was recorded, directed, and produced by Sarah Stern, Olivia Trujillo, and Sophie Neuner. Special thanks goes to Samaya, whose song Nothing Can Kill My Love For You opens our show every week. You can find her on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, Amazon, wherever you listen to your favorite tunes. Last but not least, a big shout out to you, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Bordeaux, may our paths cross again. Talk to you later.